0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome to the C86 Show. This is David Eastall. As you know, we love our indie pop and sometimes we go off-road slightly. This is a little bit different actually because a few months ago I caught up with a member of the band Go West. Yes, indeed. It is the one and only Richard Drummy who I spoke to to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, it was a great interview um, and uh, much appreciated. So anyway, after a bit of casual chat and getting to um, grips with certain technical issues, we got down to the exciting question that was the early formative years. And this was Richard's response. Richard, it's over to you.
1: Yeah, I decided very, very early on that that music was what I wanted to do. Um, I was taken, you know, literally 13, something like that. Um, I was always very realistic um, and thought, well, that's never going to happen. So I I, I pursued, um, you know, uh, Plan B, uh, which is probably to go into law or something, although um, whether that would have, I I would have enjoyed that, I don't know. Um, But yeah, I used to go to concerts Um, all the time. Um, I was lucky enough, the first few I went to, one of the very first concerts I saw, probably my second concert was the first time that they performed Dark Side of the Moon. Right. um, Which was was a brilliant night. And I just got lucky. And remember back then, you know, concerts were a little different to how they are now. You know, I'd go and see, um, you know, like you go and see ACDC and they'd have, you know, um, Angus being, you know, hoisted, above the crowd yes. um, on whatever or, or I got a job also um, cleaning up the snow for John Reeve funny enough who I, I, I met him many many years later and said I've worked for you you know and he said no, no you haven't and I said I said I, I, I have worked for you so I cleared up the snow on the, at the uh, Hammersmith Apollo when um, when when you did uh, Three Nights There with Elton on the Caribou album so um yeah, I, I I just was taken with it initially. I mean, what music do I like? I mean, basically chart music, I suppose. But I I liked I I mean, I really liked the band Free, but uh, etc. But I was never, you know, I was never a I like heavy metal or yes. I like this or you know I, I I liked all sorts. I like you know um, my singles collection got lost unfortunately. But if you go back to it, I mean, there, there were all sorts of strange things. I'd have, you know, even at 13, I'd pick up on Carol King stuff and but then I'd also like, you know, free, I'd, I'd like, I mean, one of my favourite songs when I was a kid was "Say so You Don't Mind by Colin Blundstone. So, I'll, I was pretty eclectic yes. even back then. You know? um, so when, so, so at th- I'm even
0: Excellent. But when you were sort of in that sort of early 80s period, sort of, we remember well, you had the sort of the, the punk scene and that post-punk scene with people like Gang of Forum magazine. And then you had the sort of the new, new romantic kind of world before you had, I suppose, that production sound that David Bowie had on Let's Dance and Trevor Horn. So during that early 80s and we didn't know what was going to happen next and you started to get the band together. How, what was the sort of the main, where were you thinking of taking Go West?
1: Well, there were two things with that. I mean, we were just writing and seeing what came out. I mean, as far as the punk scene, whether it even be the more um what's the word? Tangible music that you were mentioning rather than, you know, I mean I had a guy who I knew knock on my door at two o'clock in the morning once said, like, Go, oh, go, for your bass. I said, Dave, it's two o'clock in the morning. He said, You know, go, got you on the band? I said, uh you don't play bass, Dave. He said, no, no it's all right. They don't mind. Um, so I said, all right, well, I'm not using it. or oh, you can have the spare one or whatever. And he, he became the bass player in the Buzzcocks, like, the next day. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, how do you manage to get a no in the back overnight? Um, but, no, we, we were very much... Um, we, I, I think I was just discovering West Coast music and Joni Mitchell around the time that punk broke. So we couldn't have been, apart from being Emerson, Lake and Palmer, we couldn't have been any less fashionable within ourselves. Um, what were we doing? Um, yeah, we were writing, but I, one of the most, one of the um, seminal moments, I suppose that's the right word, was seeing... Um, yeah, Seeing the video for "Don't You Want Me" on the TV, it was the first time I'd heard that by The Human League, and that had quite an effect on me because I just thought, "Oh, I like this. This is this is. I mean, I like um, rock music, and I liked Free, and I liked you know Bad Company, and lots of other bands, but they seem to be using synths in a much more, much more like guitars, and much more upfront, and you know, not just to, not just create atmospheres in the background." So that, that 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 made quite quite a difference, but got to got to put it also down to obviously Peter and and the our producer, who ended up we stuck with him right through to the to the first first two albums, and you know we all liked to bang all the six, so it was it was a lot of different things. Yes. And uh, track track that really really was foremost in our minds when we started uh, was a track called Woodbees by. Um, Scritti Palitti, which, which in fact was produced by Arif Mardam, which, which I found am- amazing that the guy who produced Aretha Franklin was was, was working with a band as, te- uh, well, with as much technology about them as, as Scritti Politti. So, yes. yeah, it, it, again, it was it's just that, I mean, there were so many different influences thrown into what we did. Uh, I mean, just the, not being arrogant, but just even on my own, let alone, you know, the other people that were involved in the project.
0: Yes, well, I have to say, I mean, you know, Musically, I'm sort of obsessed about most things. Well, I, was, I, was, I have to say, I was one of those John Peel fans who I just loved everything John Peel played. But you, when you mentioned Joni Mitchell, I do remember having the Joni Mitchell period, and, and I still do, you know, of hearing Court and Spark and Blue and then Hiss of Summer Lawns yeah. and just being absolutely amazed with lyrics. I think lyrics were one of the things that I've always liked from the Carpenters, Burt Backrack, David Bowie, through to people like Joy Division and the Smiths and beyond, you know. So it's, and so when I hear, jo- yeah, Joni Mitchell and uh, Carol King, like you mentioned, I always feel that yeah. the, the lyric is something else. So with, when when you did your sort I tell, of...
1: I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, Joni is definitely my favourite. Well, I, I don't like to have favourites, but she. I, I think it's fair to say that, I mean, I always say that Joni Mitchell can... There's a line at the end of a song called Off Night Street," which is, who left her long dark hair in our, bar, in our bathtub drain? Um, and I thought, wow, that just says that says more than I've said in you know. I don't, I don't put myself forward as a brilliant lyricist either, but but it's just just you know to be able to tell you that much in one line. Yes, fantastic. Well,
0: I know. I do, I know she can put such complexity in a, a two or three lines, which is extraordinary. I mean, um, yeah, yes. I, I met
1: her once. She 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 was she was something else. I didn't meet her for long, but. It was a meeting I'll never forget. She was, <laughs> she was really, she was really nice, and the thing that I remember the most about her was just her kindness. Because I, I, I was kind of introduced myself and started to walk away at the same time, and she just thought that was hilarious and called me back. And then at, at, at the end, um, yeah, I just think she's uh, she's got a lot of mischief about her. This is probably. 25 years ago now so yeah. You know Well absolutely anyway, yes. I'm Smoke. sure she's still got mischief about her <laughs>
0: <laughs> But yes yeah, so with a lot of the bands that I've interviewed they mostly have a five year narrative where they get together I mean granted these are like a lot of those bands that I mentioned on John from the John Peel world of getting a single you know John Peel played it then they get a session first album things good second album not so good if anybody ever does America they come back and uh, that's when we broke up and you managed to last more than the five year narrative didn't you you managed to sort of go virtually for 10 years which is quite good going for most people in the band which as a fan we don't realize what the pressure is like and and sort of maintaining so much so many spinning plates so when you look back at that period how do you sort of feel about it now um
1: i feel i mean we definitely missed an opportunity with our second album and i will i mean i won't be pointing fingers at people but there were some terrible decisions made there there were there you know we they decided that we'd be better if we went somewhere and focused and worked together um so we all decamped somewhere and lived together and that was an awful idea uh we then recorded the album in a you know admittedly now probably one of the you know world-class studio called book in denmark i know I know George Michael worked there for sort of six months after us, but again, terrible idea. So, so most of 1986 was was I don't know. It was just it was. I found it very. Um, I felt like I was in some kind of weird solitary, well not solitary confinement, but band solitary confinement. And and that album was not a happy album. I mean, there were some good tracks on it, but and unfortunately, we'd lost our. Um, the guy that signed us in the first place were unfair. He'd moved on from, from Chris, you know, I don't want to berate them, but we were sending them stuff and they would say, Oh, this is great. this is great. And we thought, Oh, all right then. Well, they think it's good. And you do have a tendency not to be arrogant, but you do think, well, it's going to
0: do all right, hasn't
1: it? You know, the first one did 2 million. Um, so just, sorry, I'm going on forever, but basically we got, you know, after that album didn't work, then the record company really did um, up with their you know uh, getting it putting their finger in the pie as it were and we just wouldn't wouldn't play their game and so there was about a three-year uh time where not much happened um we had some money now finally from the record and so we just went well we're not going to do what you want they, they were telling us to go and write separately with other people and things like that um which we did briefly but you know it didn't work we could, all of a sudden there was no core to the material, and um, Eventually, uh, what what uh, got us back again was getting away from our English record company and signing to EMI America. Although I think we did deal part of them, you know, you know, record companies are there's only two or three now, Um, and um, you know, if 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 you if you climb up the tree or down the tree, um, and Rob Fair again, this guy that signed us was there. We wrote the King of Wishful Thinking got a bit more enthusiastic because we were with somebody, you know, and uh, he said, I'd like to put this film in, I'd like to put this song in a film called Pretty Woman that he was putting the soundtrack together for. I mean, that's a long, boring tale there. I didn't want to do it for various reasons. Uh, Unfortunately, I was, I I bowed to his um, judgment and um, it's all very well now saying, oh, Pretty Woman but at the time, you know, nobody knew who Julia Roberts were the, the film sounded weird. It was about a guy who hires a prostitute for for a week for three thousand dollars. It was called Three Thousand, Not Pretty Woman, and I just thought, ah, I don't like this. We're going to get we're going to get um, siphoned off into promoting somebody else's record. And in fact, you know that is what happened. I mean, you know, Pretty Woman, yes, great, sold about twelve million, but our album suffered because of it um, because obviously our single wasn't strapped onto our album. Our album wasn't put out at that point. So we had our biggest song with no album other than than the Pretty Woman album. But listen, if somebody could get me to change that decision, I wouldn't change it now, obviously, because it was uh, it's part of the reason you're talking to me now. Why we have lasted this long, because we had a massive hit, you know, five years into our career, which, um, you know, has obviously kept kept us, kept us afloat partly.
0: Yes. So then, just briefly, because I know time's it. Flick- uh, did you have a oh, moment? Oh, you carry
1: on that. It's okay. I, I heard somebody trying to call just now. So so, so I, I, I was just I'm kind of before.
0: kind of curious. Then, in, you know, you did yeah. Indian Summer in 92. And and one, okay, yeah. so one many like many things kind of get, get a band, you know, like the five-year narrative and just like, ah, I can't deal with this anymore and we've made no money. And the other thing is like fashion suddenly changed. So a lot of those bands I've done, which are the indie bands, I suppose, you know, suddenly the dance scene comes along and it's like, oh, no, we're not into the dance scene. So and no one cares or you get grunge and then you get Brit pop. So another fashion comes along. And unless you're able to or David Bowie, you just think, mm, I don't know, no one cares about it. So then, I mean, you go, you know, into the 90s, you'd gone through several musical worlds, you? you know, like scenes from the early years. So from 92. Yeah. So, so when you got to 92, how were you feeling then?
1: Well, we were very optimistic because, as I say, I mean, the King of Whistle thinking that is the album that you know that was the first one we wrote for that album, and and then we were kind of it was weird because you know it's like a scientist kind of come up with this, this this great invention and then somebody uh, uh, actually it's a terrible analogy basically we wanted to get on I wanted to get on with our records you know but what happened was we went off to do pretty woman and then came back and carried on writing so it was a it was um yeah i mean obviously it was nice to a nice uh point uh to be uh to be at because we'd already had a hit so obviously the record company were much more open to you know letting us have our head and and do what we wanted and um yeah i mean faithful came off that album i really like indian summer but Again, a lot of people don't hear the backstory. So, I mean, I remember on that album, Peter Wolf produced it. We liked him; he was an interesting character. But we liked a lot of stuff he'd done before. Very versatile producer. He did King of Wish for Thinking. He did We Built the City. He did uh, Night Shift for the Commodores, you know. Um, but what happened there was our oh, Ron Fair again said to us at the end, "Okay, guys, um, you got enough money left to do one track with Peter Wolf, or you can do five tracks with me." um producing. Um so we did five tracks with Ron and that brought in some interesting <laughs> interesting things like Ron doing um Ron doing these arrangements um for songs. Uh so it, we were never you know, we're not the gang of four, we're not television, we're not talking heads. We we weren't that that's the word. I suppose we were more we were a bit more easy to kind of, you know, uh, grateful to be there might be the word you know um so um so yeah i suppose we you know some of, some of what we did was was um you know steered i mean call me i remember coming back and we wrote call me because we couldn't get arrested with, with the other stuff and i said oh, i've had enough of this i said i said i know what they want let's just give them what they want and i, I started this song call me and we finished it. And the demo, I mean, if you hear it now, I mean, I think "Call, Call Me" is a pretty poppy commercial song. The lyrics certainly aren't worth, you know, uh, sorry to berate my material, but on our our own material, but you know, it's not Nabokov. And 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 um, you know, the demo sounded like five ice cream vans coming around the corner at the same time. You know, I mean, it, it, it got we hung we hung some nice um, tints on the tree, but. And I, I, sure enough, played to record companies. Hey, there, there you go. That's all we have been looking for. Um, so it's a funny old business, you know, maybe. I don't know. I, I wonder, maybe David Bowie did do that. Maybe David Bowie had to write something, you know, tailor made to try to break a door down i don't know yes, you know?
0: well, I think he he probably did have a moment in eighty two with the uh, let's dance of having to quickly well sort of think quite quickly on his feet and go with the moment, and then sort of was was there kind of at that kind of surf that wave of kind of like i don't know that that but that kind of production sound and that very easy you know it was instantly. It was instantly rec- almost recognisable, wasn't it? You could hum it by the end of the song, most of those let, Let's Dance. Yeah, a lot
1: of people, a lot of Bowie fans have got a lot. Of, I mean, that, that is the album that I hear sort of berated more than more than any other. I mean, I don't know. I've got the album. I don't know if I know the rest of the tracks, but certainly, I certainly really liked Let's Dance when it came out. But, yes, it was definitely you know, a moment. I, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm, you know, I I, I I don't know Bowie upside down like a lot of people do. I think. I grew up with him, but he, he was always kind of there, but I, I you know, I, 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 it's only now I, I, I you know, or, or more recently that I kind of look back and go, wow, you know, this guy is just, cha- you know, just changed so many times and came up with, um, you know, I mean, it just changes. I had changes on the radio. I just thought, what a song, you know, I mean,
0: just,
1: just, you know, just the, Everything about it, you know, it's just not something that that I, you know, would fall fall out of, um, it had no real structure to it, do you know what I mean? It just kind of had so many different bits and it's very hard to write those kind of songs and have hits with, you know. I think it's his voice and it's it's just his spirit that held it all together. Yes,
0: absolutely. And just lastly, or just vaguely, I mean, what would you say to an 18-year-old self or, or the thing that you've picked up over those decades of being in this kind of industry and career and um, yeah career is better than, you know something that you thought god actually that's something i've really learned and i i wished i could have told myself that when i was starting out
1: okay well that, that's easy because my son well my son works for the biggest publishing company in the world um but he you know he also likes you know he makes his own music um i i fear i feel for anyone trying to get anywhere in the business these days just because of streaming and and you know having to survive, it was difficult enough when when we tried, but but you know compared to now, it was a, it was a cakewalk then. Um, finish things, you know that's what I'm screaming at him. Finish things. I keep I keep going to my studio where he works and I hear things. I go great, no, I'm quite done done yet, Dad. And I thought you're a chip off the old block, aren't you? And so finish things, and also don't give up. I mean that. I, we didn't get a record deal until we were 20. I, I was 26 when we got a record deal. Pete was 29. I mean, imagine that happening now for a pop-up, for a pop act, <laughs> uh, It just wouldn't happen. And, and it only happened because, you know, we were working, doing, you know, uh, nine-to-five jobs, and but we didn't give up. Um, so, But I do think, you know, especially people don't realize how quickly time goes. And, you know, in the music business now, but uh, as it's always been youth it's a youth game. And so you can't waste too much time. If you've written something that's half decent, just get it out there. Just play it to people. Because nobody can like something if they haven't heard it.
0: Yes, this is true. This is true. this is... It's so true. And that was me basically editing myself off. Anyway. Sounds a bit weird. Anyway, look, that's the end of the interview. A huge thank you to Richard Drummy from Go West for that uh, interview, which I did a few months ago. 2020, a memorable year for so many reasons. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also all these shows have been archived. And you can find those on Podbean, Spotify and iTunes. Indeed. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.